Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. This symposium and panel discussion, recorded on June 1st, 2013, at the National Gallery of Art, honored the exhibition Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe, 1909-1929, when art danced with music, on view from May 12th to September 2nd, 2013. The exhibition draws upon a 2010 exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum, the V&A, and draws upon some 80 works from the V&A's renowned collection of dance artifacts and adds about 50 objects generously offered by more than 20 lenders, private and public. The Ballet Russe, the most innovative dance company of the 20th century, propelled the performing arts to new heights through groundbreaking collaborations between artists, composers, choreographers, dancers, and fashion designers. Founded by Russian impresario Serge Diaghilev in Paris in 1909, the company combined Russian and Western traditions with a healthy dose of modernism, thrilling and shocking audiences with its powerful fusion of choreography, music, and design. In this panel discussion, the lecturers are joined by Juliette Bellow, Assistant Professor, Department of Art, American University, Sarah Kennel, Associate Curator, Department of Photographs, National Gallery of Art, and Jane Pritchard, Curator of Dance, Victoria and Albert Museum. So before we conclude today, um, we are going to um, like to invite two of my colleagues up here, um, to actually all of my colleagues up here to take a seat, um, but also introduce two of them. Um, Juliette Bellow, I think I mentioned her name briefly earlier. She's a professor of art history at American University, a scholar of the Ballet Russe. Um, she is a consulting scholar on this exhibition as well, so she's kind of um, seen the exhibition through from the moment it got to the National Gallery to where it is now. So she's um, uh, very well equipped to speak about this exhibition. Um, and she's also the author of a book that has just come out, um, Modernism on Stage, The Ballet Russe and the Parisian Avant-Garde, also for sale in our bookshop. Um, and of course, our other um, guest, um, who Juliet will kind of um, present some thoughts about today's Symposium, but also about the exhibition in general, um, and pose some questions to Jane Pritchard, who is curator of dance for the Victoria and Albert Museum. Um, and with Jeff Marsh, she curated Diaghilev in the Golden Age of the Ballet Russe, 1909 to 1929, which opened in London in 2010. And she um, edited and wrote much in the accompanying book. Um, Juliet also added an essay for the U.S. version of the catalog. Um, Jane has a long history uh, with the ballet. She was also um, an archivist for the Rambert Dance Company in the English National Ballet and created the Contemporary Dance Trust Archive. And she's curated other exhibitions as well, including Les Ballets, 1933, uh, and um, Rambert Dance Company at 75, and A Flash of Light, the dance photography of Chris Nash. Um, she's uh, curated also films, uh, of dance and has um, written many articles and um, she is uh, the recipient of numerous awards and her most recent book is Anna Pavlova, 20th Century Ballerina. So please welcome Juliet and Jane um, to the podium, uh, to the table, um, but I'd also like to invite other speakers to come sit down um, and uh, we'll also open up the, the panel for questions as well. Thank you, Sarah. Um, and while everyone's assembling here, um, I just want to—I want to thank Sarah Kennel and the National Gallery for allowing me to work as a, cons a consulting scholar on this version of the exhibition, and also want to thank Jane um, and her colleague Jeff Marsh for putting, for conceiving this truly impressive exhibition. Um, little did I know way back when I foolishly decided to write a dissertation about avant-garde artists who designed for the Ballet Russe 
um, that I would have a chance to work on a major exhibition dedicated to this phenomenon. And one of the experiences that I had um, when first going through the galleries upstairs was a feeling of kind of re-encountering old friends, right? Um, works that I've seen uh, various times. And in some cases, um, it's almost like a kind of blind date, works that I had only seen in, in photographs before. So it's very exciting to see it all assembled here. And I think that the exhibition and also the press coverage that it's received um, have given me both an opportunity and I think an impetus to look at this subject um, in, in new ways. So um, I hope that uh, we want you all to have your say, but um, I want to just briefly outline some of the things that hopefully we, we as a panel can talk about. Um, I think at the, possibly at the top of this list of um, new ways that I'm looking at these works um, comes from the headline for the review of the show from Bloomberg, which referred to the female figures in Picasso's um, overture curtain for the Ballet Tremblot, which is at the end of the show, as Picasso's big broads. Um, I'll never be able to look at that, that work the same way again. Um, but I think in, in a more serious way, some of the reviews raised some really important and, and kind of challenging questions about the show. And so Sarah and I thought this might be a good time to, to talk about some of those, to reflect a little bit on the exhibition, why we made the choices we did, what effects and ramifications those choices have had, and the reception of those choices by critics and by all of you, by visitors to the show. And so I think it's really lovely that we have Jane um, Pritchard here to help us think about what is the story of the Ballet Russe that we're telling here, and in what ways and to what degree that story differs from the way it was told in London. Is this a case of um, institutional emphases and prerogatives? Uh, is this a question of audiences that might differ in the U.S. versus the U.K.? Is it something that's endemic to the Ballet Russe, that this, this story is always necessarily partial um, because of the nature of this enormous multifaceted enterprise. And so to that end, I, I'd like to highlight three related issues that have come up in some of the press coverage that the show has, um, has received. And I think the first of these issues could be summed up in the question, Serge who? Right? Um, because at least one review has noted that although Diaghilev's name graces the entrance to the exhibition, he is more or less sidelined in the show itself. And um, to some degree, I think that there's um, an ideology and maybe even a politics behind that, or at least um, that's the case in my own book, which pointedly does not include Diaghilev in its title. I think that sometimes his presence provides a certain um, false sense of coherence for what was really quite a messy and, and kind of complicated phenomenon. Now, arguably, what we've done in the show, though, is simply replace one name, Diaghilev, which with a bunch of other big names, Picasso, Matisse, and the list goes on. We, I think we have a, an unresolved issue here between the kind of prerogative of the individual and the claims of the collective. And one um, result of that is that there, you know, many, if not most of the people who created the Ballet Russe are not really in this show, including, I think it's important to say, a lot of women who were involved not only as artists such as Gontrova, um, and Sonia Delaunay, who we have in the show, um, Lauren Sen, who we don't, um, but also some of the female performers who I don't think get enough billing um, in this show. And that leads to uh, the second issue that I think merits consideration, which is what exactly is it that we're showing in these galleries? Um, the Washington Post critic Philip Kennicott pointed out how jarring it is to see some of these works um, in a gallery space, especially the drop cloths and the overture curtains, which are meant to be seen from afar. 
He also talked about um, the way in which some of these um, costumes seem a little bit faded, right? Um, and as much as I would want to press him on some of these points, I think there's an important principle at this core, which is the challenge that a performative genre um, like ballet presents to a museum context. In other words, the work itself can never be fully present in the gallery. And for quite some time, that's meant that art museums have shied away from showing um, performative uh, art. Only recently have we seen dance and performance entering into the museum in proportion to its importance in the history of art, with shows like, um, like this one, of course, um, shows such as uh, MoMA's 2010 retrospective of Marina Abramovic, which is the first ever of a performance artist um, at MoMA. That's, that's really surprising, I think. So in many ways, and I don't mean to be speaking out of school, I think the National Gallery is a little bit late to that game. Um, but, uh, but I think that it's making up for that with this, uh, with this show. And I think that brings me to the last and, and third um, issue. And again, I'm going to go back to Philip Kennicott, um, the reviewer from the Washington Post, who asks in his review whether, and I'm quoting, this is the right kind of exhibition for the National Gallery to host. I might turn that question around and ask, is Philip Kennicott the right critic to review this show? Um, and... I, I don't mean to be making... I, I actually mean that in a kind of serious way, which is that there have been reviewers... You know, the, the show has been reviewed by dance critics, by fashion critics, by art critics. Who, um, who can really claim um, a kind of, you know, um, stake in what it means to, to, um, to review the show? Kennecott voices a kind of concern that I've been hearing for many years, um, from the early days of working on the Ballet Russe, I'm always having to ask, answer the question, is this really art history? And um, obviously I'm you know, getting a little tired of that at this point. But um, he's you know, raising concerns that this show will serve as, quote, a precedent for bringing material even more remote from the core obligations of the National Gallery, unquote, into its hallowed halls. And I think obviously there's a certain kind of trenchant conservatism here. Um, about what kind of threat to the domain of art uh, that this kind of material might present. And it's, as I said, um, a kind of point of view that I've, I've heard quite often over the years, that essentially, well, yes, Picasso and Matisse and all those you know, important people worked on the Ballet Russe designs, but they really weren't being very serious about it, right? This is quite tangential to their um, really serious, important painterly practice. Um, this is simply pragmatic um, in some ways. And I think um, that's missing the real importance and the nuances behind this kind of work. I think what the designs that you see upstairs show is these artists both at their most pra- pragmatic and at their most utopian. Um, to kind of summarize the, you know, the argument of my book in just a couple of sentences, I think what you see there is artists taking ideas from their painterly practice and experimenting with what they would look like in a very different kind of medium, gleaning insights from that and bringing it back into their, into their painting. So this is really um, about what artists have to give, what visual artists have to give to the other arts, and what they have to learn from them. And so that's why I'm really pleased to have not only Jane here, but a panel um, of experts representing so many different fields and domains. Um, and so with that, I, I just want to um, open the floor to Jane to talk a little bit about, from her perspective, um, what this show represents. Gosh, um, there's an awful lot there um, that you're talking about. So suddenly, have to answer very, very quickly, and, and in terms of an immediate response. Uh, number one, I would totally agree about the absence of Diaghilev. Um, I remember going, getting captions sent to me, and eventually, I wrote back and I said. 
doesn't this man even have a first name? Um, <laughs> because everybody else seemed to, but Diaghilev didn't. Um, no, this is a very different exhibition from the one that started out in London. Uh, and it has been on tour. It's been to Quebec, who chose the name that then got stuck to it. It's been to two venues uh, in Spain, uh, and now it's here. And in every venue, it is a totally different experience. Um, I think that's fascinating because it gives you a chance to reassess material you, that you've become very familiar with. Um, in terms of, of the V&A, I think it's important to be aware that we are a museum of art and design. We are a museum that is interested in the craft of art, um, and we are Britain's leading uh, theatrical collection. Uh, and so those elements are things that we are, were bringing out when we did the original show. Uh, and our intention in uh, London was to create something that was a theatrical experience. We used a, a leading theatre designer to design the exhibition. We gave our visitors as many surprises as we could as they went round. When we started, we started from the, the fact that we wanted to show at least two of the cloths in our collection, um, and we knew there was only one position in the V&A exhibition galleries where they could hang, uh, and so that dictated the whole shape of the exhibition. Uh, we actually had sort of three spaces that we were working in. The first was more or less chronological, as was the, the last, but not in, ex entirely. Um, and the central section was indeed about process. Uh, this was actually a very liberating um, moment because it actually allowed you to put a little bit of a production in and then the people who came and complained and said, where's Apollo? You said, oh, didn't you notice it's back in the previous room? Um, so that sort of had to sort of shut them up quite uh, easily. So we actually were able to include far more different productions than are in this exhibition. This exhibition is slimmed down. It's half the number of objects. Uh, it has... About half the exhibition has come from the V&A. Some of the loans uh, are the same, and uh, some are different. With our exhibition, it was, we were given the title. Once the exhibition was agreed, we were given the title um, after uh, they had done an uh, audience survey to sort of pick a title. Um, <laughs> and they came up with the gold, Serge Diaghilev, and then they dropped the name Serge, and we just had Diaghilev and the Golden Age of the Ballet Russe, 1909 to 1929, which is just about as deadly as anyone could come up with. Um, so I, I felt we, we, we've started with sort of a vague handicap, and I kept getting Russians coming along and telling me, don't you know it's the Silver Age of Russian art? And, oh, God. Um, so there was all, so, all sorts of problems. And yes, of course, if you do have the name Diaghilev as your main feature, um, who the hell is he um, from the general public? One was very aware that, obviously, Picasso, Chanel, uh, even Nijinsky is far better known. Uh, so there are an enormous number of problems. But the V&A does like golden ages, and it does like putting the dates on um, <laughs> titles, which, of course, creates problems for me as well, because I don't believe that Ballet Russe is 1909 to 1929. I believe it's 1911 to 1929, but that's another story. Um, the company, as an existence, doesn't start until 1911. Yes, the presents dance, but that's a different thing. Um, so the, the, right from the word go, I had enormous problems. But we knew we had to keep Diaghilev central. Um, just as with uh, Washington, they wanted to borrow uh, portraits from Russia, um, so did we. We knew it was very unlikely that we would get the backs loaned to us because it had been seen in London in an exhibition of Russian art uh, just the year before our exhibition. And so really that ruled it out in, in all likelihood. We did want the Serov. Um, I know there are different problems here. We didn't succeed in getting any of those. 
Um, so it was a case of how do we put geoglyph uh, with us. We had a lot of illustrations of different kinds. We had the, the Polunin portrait. We had cartoons of geoglyph. Um, and in our captioning, we included references to geoglyph far more than we hear. So having given that, us that title, we had to keep the man present right the way through. And we tried to look at geoglyph in a much broader sense than he is here. Um, uh, the idea is we were looking beyond the Bali Roos. We were trying to put the Bali Roos into a wider cultural context. Um, but I'm not going to go on on, on that one. Um, what, what, some of the other points <laughs> oh, I was meant to be answering. Yeah. Um, and how, how, to, how to convey through material traces what, what the work is like. Well, I think this is, this is something that we are up against the whole time. Um, I work in a department of theatre and performance. We have a, a gallery of theatre and performance in the V&A. And when I take guided tours around, um, I'm delighted that the first thing that people see when they walk into the gallery is a rhinoceros. Um, now, this, of course, surprises people, which is partly what it's intended to do, but it's, made, it's a costume from the UNESCO play, uh, The Rhinoceros. Uh, but I think it's a wonderful metaphor for our problems. We haven't acquired it because it's made of latex. It's going to disintegrate. Um, and so although one can put on display everything but the real work, um, this, this rhino, to me, seems a, a wonderful metaphor for the problems that we're up against. We can never show you the real work of art um, that was created using a myriad of materials, um, and that's something that all curators of performance face. I just want to mention a couple of other things that came up at the end of what you were saying. Um, when Diaghilev was on in, in London, also in London was Move It about postmodern dance at the Hayward Gallery, uh, and at the Lowry in the north of England was an exhibition on the history of the Royal Ballet. So suddenly there were three major dance exhibitions in, London at the same, in, in Britain at the same time, which I thought was absolutely extraordinary. Um, the other thing is, I mean, there obviously have been a lot of exhibitions on the theme of the Ballet Russe, and I think once these were realised as a marketable uh, sort of uh, entity in themselves, in addition to the fact that um, the company is so fascinating on such a wide basis, um, and it means that people can look at it from so many different angles, but there has become a trend of different Ballet Russe exhibitions. And one thing I was determined when we set out was that I didn't want to be like every other exhibition. I didn't want to be like the rich, very famous British Richard Buckle exhibition in 1954, when what he was doing was getting mass. He was getting as many portraits and as many designs as possible, um, and the idea of having those things mattered to him. I would say, as a footnote to that, one of the things that absolutely delights me about this exhibition is the Modigliani uh, portrait of Bax, which is one of the few things he wasn't allowed to have because it's never allowed to leave this museum. And so to see it in a Bally Ruth exhibition like this, I sort of think, well, you know, he would be looking down on us and thinking, yippee, at long last it's there uh, with the rest of the things, which is always very nice um, sort of to have. But I said from the word go... The two things I wanted was people to understand more about the process of how things came together for the exhibition, and it was not going to be an exhibition of first nights. Um, the history of the Ballet Russe is a great deal more than the premieres of the works, and I wanted to give some sense of evolution of the company. Um, now, some of that has been picked up here, some of that hasn't. Um, as I say, it's always fascinating to see things in different contexts. Uh, there are certain things that are in this exhibition we would like to have had and weren't able to, um, so that's also very satisfying to see them next to each other. Um, but it is, I think, fascinating how you can take similar material 
and rework it wherever you go. And that happens with a lot of exhibitions. So particularly with, with sort of exhibitions that are not exactly touring the whole entity, there is a sense of reworking for different uh, venues, reworking for different audiences. So thinking about what visitor interests within a venue are going to be. And I think that is actually terribly important in mounting an exhibition. I might... Um I think, you know, this is a sort of fascinating for me. I'm, I, um, of course, kind of had this exhibition uh, you know, happily dropped onto my lap, and it was something that was um, already fully formed at the V&A, um, but yet it came to me with the directive of this needs to be... We love this exhibition. Uh, we had our, the head of our exhibition department and our chief designer or director saw the exhibition in London, and that is what made them want to bring it here and do something that normally this gallery probably wouldn't do. And at the same time, the exhibition came and the directive was, let's make sure that this is a national gallery show, whatever that means. Um, But I certainly know that it meant privileging um, the fine arts, um, and that meant, you know, in some ways that, of course, determines your selection of objects, not just highlighting the contributions of those very same artists we have in our collection otherwise, like Picasso and Matisse, Delaunay, but also privileging the history of the ballet that remains in, in visual materials. So therefore, you know, there are great costumes that exist for a ballet like Sadko, but arguably that's not one of the most important ballets in the Ballet Russe. There are other very important ballets that get cut out for a variety of reasons, but sometimes it's because there's very little in the way of visual materials um, of, I put this up in quote, of an artistic nature that exists. And I think our institutional identity as a fine art museum allowed us to bring a lot of material together um, that other institutions might not have um, when of the additions for me that's you know personally very satisfying is a painting by Fernand Leger um, that we borrowed from MoMA, which is titled Exit the Ballet Russe. He did it in 1914. It's not a rendition of a ballet. He didn't work for the Ballet Russe, although it seems like he wanted to. Um, but it is about a kind of response to um, the explosion of ballet in modern culture in Paris. Um, but by the same token, um, that also meant that we're telling a very particular story at the History Ballet, and it's one that's driven by the visual arts. So um, my job as a curator um, is, you know, is to try to present a balanced history, but also do something that is in line with the mission of this institution. And I think what has been satisfying for me, you know, given all of the omissions and other complications, is that... Um, uh, I think we've been able to make the case to some skeptical people, if not Philip Kennicott, then others, <laughs> that this really is central to the story of modern art. We may not be telling the history of the Ballet Russe in any kind of complete way, and I'm not sure any exhibition will, but I think we're changing a little bit the history of early 20th century art, um, doing what Juliet um, is trying to do in her book, which is to argue that the Ballet Russe, ballet, performance, music, movement, um, choreography is really central, not this kind of peripheral thing. Um, I will mention that, you know, just, so there's a philosophical issue of, you know, how does the National Gallery present a history of dance? I mean, how do you ever present a sort of a history of a cultural phenomenon that includes um, performance? Um, 
but also something in line with our mission. But the second question was much more pragmatic, which is one that all institutions face, but it's, it's also the question of installation and materials. Um, like the V&A, um, there were only really two places where we could put the curtains, but in fact they didn't even quite fit. So we had to raise the ceilings um, in the East Building galleries, and the placement of those curtains really did kind of determine the, the rest of the, of the show. And of course, you know, there's the ideal show that you do, and then there's the real one, which is based on the materials, the loans you get, um, but also the requirements for the materials. Um, we do not have a costume collection here. We have um, an amazing textile conservator who's in the audience. Hi, Julia. Um, and we have shown costumes in other loan exhibitions. We actually have a Matisse costume um, in our collection. It's kind of part of our Matisse collection, but we, it's not um, a department that we have. We don't have a costume curator. So for us, that was a big challenge in trying to figure out not just how to display them in terms of you know, safety, um, but also how to make them dynamic. Um, and I think tomorrow, Jane is going to talk a lot about costumes you know, as living things as well and not as, as these um, art objects on the wall. Um, but I, I have done a lot of talking about the show, um, and I'm mostly um, interested in hearing about what other people have to say either on the panel or questions from the audience. So if there are any. I think we have a microphone. We're going to get a microphone first and pass it around. Can we take these? Oh, yeah. Oh, and, and while we're passing the microphone around, um, I would like to, s is there another question from the panel? It's, it's out there. Yeah. Lots, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I have a loud voice. Okay, great. <laughs> and I would just Thank you. No. And, and I should also just say that we've actually had a lot of very positive yeah. response as well. Um, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to be a Debbie. No, <laughs> no but just, it is the challenging, you know, one. I just say one thing. I suspect Dioglick himself would really resent these exhibitions. I don't think that that's what he thought he was uh, would be the sort of surviving legacy. But. Um, yeah. well, yeah, my, my question had to do with the acquisition of the costumes and all the stuff, a lot of which came up in a Sotheby's sale in London, and I wonder if someone could address that because uh, surely the market is a form of preservation. And I was struck at the time how low the prices were for all of these things in the auction, and uh, perhaps there could be a word about that. Yes, I'm very happy to, to answer that. It's not just one auction, it's a whole series of auctions uh, that took place. I will be talking a bit about that tomorrow, but I think the important thing is there are four key auctions that get the whole sort of ball rolling, and it is the point at which um, celebrity auctions really take off. The first one in 1967 uh, was uh, created around costumes that were, had been stored away by the company's registrar Grigoriev, um, and they were put on the market. They are star costumes. There are a number in the exhibition. So, for example, the Nijinsky Festine came up on that occasion. The Cleopatra came up on that occasion. Um, and this was really the first time that theatre costumes had been sold by a major auction house. Um, 
Following that, a whole series of costumes were basically um, offered to Sotheby's to sell, which had been in stores, and they were sold over three auctions. Indeed, a lot of the costumes did go very, very cheaply. Um, and as I will show you, they ended up being worn by people for parties um, and various things like that. Um, gradually, their value has been appreciated. Uh, and if you look at the graph of actually how the prices have risen, um, they've absolutely gone through the ceiling. Uh, the highest paid uh, price for a costume now, I believe, is for a Matisse. Uh, when we bought the Chinese conjurer uh, at the Leafar sale, um, that was the um, highest price at that point. Uh, but certainly, anyone who purchased costumes at that point in time made a very wise, if surprising, investment. <laughs> I think it also speaks to the, you know, to this this issue that that um, I raised earlier, which is the question of whether it was considered art or when it became considered art. And I think that that's the, you know, that's the key. I mean, if somebody had told you, you know, in 1967 that you could get a Picasso, you know, um, I mean, you you would not think that that would be a hard sell. And so I think it's really surprising that, um, but also tells us a lot about kind of um, institutional, um, you know, art institutional lim limitations on, you know, kind of what can be understood as art and what's, you know, what, what's beyond that, um, that scope. And on the art front, I think it's worth mentioning that um, the National Museum in Canberra were out at the last of the first run of sales in 1973. This was before they even had a building, realising they could get work by major artists very cheaply. And the son of the director, who was at the time, I believe, about 12, was the one who waved the paddle. <laughs> uh, it seems to me that um, in one of the... Th this issue that we were talking about, uh, the um, s sort of critics' perception of supremacy of the fine arts over theater. I mean, it's, it's funny because um, the, the artifacts of theater have always been perceived as this kind of ephemera, that theater itself is ephemeral and then the artifacts are, are ephemeral. And even though the prices paid in 67, 68, uh, 69, 74, 73, 74 were low. Uh, at the same time, it was actually novel to invest at all in this ephemera, and it was the fact of the purchase, even if for trivial prices, that allowed their preservation. So people, so institutions and private collectors took ownership of a sort, and otherwise, um, most of this was this material was slowly rotting in storage mm -hmm. and uh, would have been destroyed altogether. So. Um, I, I'm, I don't know if Jane, you want to comment, uh, perhaps about about this sort of ethereal and ephemeralness of of that. Well, I think it's one of the biggest problems with um, all our collections is that um, they were never there for. I mean, apart from uh, the occasional design artwork, very little material that's related to theatre was ever designed for uh, posterity, um, and so we we do rely terribly heavily on our conservators. Um, to keep things going, um, but I don't think that. About, I think we're all interested, actually, nowadays in the much more everyday, and you can't get much more everyday, I think, than some theatrical material. Um, and so, in terms of encapsulating um, a world and a society and the pleasures that theatre gives to people, um, to have material that you can actually sort of tangibly get hold of uh, is really exciting. The comment about things being faded, yes, of course they're faded. Um, 
the, I think one of the things that's very important to remember about costume in particular um, is that these are worn and worn, and if the production is successful, they're worn till they rot um, and disintegrate, and then they get remade. Um, and even if they're not successful, they still just get shoved in a, a skip. Um, this is not couture fashion. This is not carefully wrapped in tissue after worn, being worn once uh, and put it in careful storage. Uh, so these have had a, a very long history, and we love it when we find traces of... of you know, makeup and sweat and all the rest of it on, on the costumes. That's part of the story. Okay. We have a question from the audience. Um, my introduction to the Ballet Russe was many years ago. I read a series of books by Robert Kraft and conversations with Stravinsky, and later on, there were very vivid depictions of Diaghilev and other collaborators. Later on, there was doubt cast on the veracity of those books because uh, evidently uh, it was thought that Kraft was putting words into Stravinsky's mouth with his approval because Stravinsky had a, uh, could not have, did not have that command of English uh, that was exhibited in the books. And I always wondered... Um, how much of what we know of Diaghilev and others associated with the Ballet Russe in the craft books are accurate, and how, uh, how, how reliable are they? This is a question for you, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, let me start then. Um, um, indeed, very much has been made up, um, and especially about uh, Diaghilev, as far as I know. I remember very well that in the, in the craft book there is a description of Diaghilev's uh, apartment, um, but Stravinsky never has been in Diaghilev's apartment, and he describes that there are all mirrors around, so that Diaghilev you know, is portrayed as a very vain man, and there were no mirrors, maybe one or so, but, but none of the other descriptions of the, of the apartment that, uh, that you know, Diaghilev had in St. Petersburg uh, has mirrors in its description. So it's really made up. Um, so as far as at least his depiction of Diaghilev goes, in many ways, especially you know, um, uh, the Petersburg part of Diaghilev is, is completely made up. It's also that Stravinsky tried to uh, establish himself already as an, you know, a connoisseur of art uh, when he was still in St. Petersburg. Well, the fact was, of course, that he was, you know, uh, a, a none too um, famous student of Rimsky-Korsakov and was really not involved in the art world besides, of course, the world of music. So that is one of the reasons, I think, that Stravinsky craft as an ensemble tried to portray him uh, in that way. Of course, some of the later um, remembrances, uh, uh, they have a bit more value, but still you have to be very, very critical uh, about everything in these books, how well-written and how you know, readable they are. Uh, the only things I'll add to that is if you look at the conversations, you see that they have a structure that is very much uh, you know, that of a script, that of an academic discourse, platonic dialogue, however you'd like to... So it, um, they have that sort of fictional apparatus to them. They're not casual. They're not off the cuff. There's an agenda behind them. And uh, the agenda has to do with Robert Kraft's view of music as pure and divorced from the other arts, when, in fact, of course, the Ballet Russe was all about and modernism was all about the integration of the arts. Um, you know, the scandal, so-called, around uh, Le Sach when it premiered, which is something that's been properly you know, reconstructed, if you will, by 
Serge. Um, you know, that was, that was about the visual element, not the music. And uh, Stravinsky, over the course of his long life, wanted to recode that experience to make it more about the music, to make that score the cause celebre. And um, because of the politics, which Richard Taruskin, among others, have talked about, he was very happy to talk about how great the use of the Rite of Spring in Fantasia was. The, the dinosaurs jumping around to that music was somehow better than, you know, fascism. <laughs> you know? So uh, this, is, this is about, yeah, it's about modernism and late modernism, about a view of music that comes into play in the, ad, in the age of recordings that led to a recoding of this bizarre and interesting experience of a young man who barely got the job in the first place. Um, you know, getting very, very fortunate. Um, so it's uh, yeah, big agenda there, and that's what's fascinating about it is looking at the agenda, not only the ghostwriting. One other question. One second. In the portion of the exhibit dealing with the Firebird, you show a video which is different from the other videos that are shown, and I wondered what. <laughs> dancer is exhibited from what company and what led to this selection for this ballet? Okay, I think that's actually a very interesting question because I think it actually relates to how when something has been created for a very specific installation, it doesn't necessarily come across within another context. The way we worked the Firebird in London was that we were coming through an area that was sort of backstage, went into different elements. Uh, We had a section on music, including part of the score of the Firebird. We had, throughout our exhibition, a series of AVs that were narrated by the British uh, musicologist uh, radio personality, Howard Goodall, um, who actually, just by that point, was analysing the Firebird, and we included in that a series of clips of the Royal Ballet performing the Firebird with the Goncharova uh, backcloth, um, so the Fouquin choreography. So people had seen that. They then saw the series of designs, and we actually had... um, more versions of the, the design for the cloth. Um, so we had, we had the squared-up drawing as well, that was the way that you took it from the finished design and put it onto the... And then you turned a corner, and then you saw the firebird. And it was a triangle. The corner was a triangle. The cloth was what greeted you. And, and the two adjacent walls, we had this, so it was on two walls. Um, and we also, in there, had three other screens... So it was a much more multimedia experience. Um, and so without half of those parts, one's only seeing and seeing it flat on. One is not seeing it as it was intended. It's very intended, carefully intended to be... Uh, we also had moments, so you came in, uh, and the comment they were making about how uh, these cloths are meant to be seen as if they're from a distance. Well, we said, well, there's no way we can do that. We've got to make people feel that they are within a much more of a, a stage situation. Um, and so we had moments where the lights were changed on the cloth, so you could focus on the cloth. You could see we also had points when you, we could really sort of see shadows on the wall, and you would see people moving and deliberately making shadows. Um, so we were creating something different. We, we called it the Firebird experience when we did it. Um, to see it as a flat film, um, I think is rather deadening, to be perfectly honest. It doesn't, to me, really work in that situation, particularly when you haven't shown the actual sort of material. So we didn't want to make people sort of linger over it in the same way as they did other AVs. I think the very different arrangement of AVs within this exhibition means that you look at it 
very differently from what it was intended because every gallery you go into here, it is dominated by AV. We always slightly hid our AVs. People had to find them. Then they could stop and have a long look at them um, rather than drawing people to the AV too quickly. Um, and so I think it's given it a dominance that's not there. Uh, the dancer in it is Begonia Cow from English National Ballet and she's just literally doing an evocation of fire, but it's not deliberate choreography. Um, the, the costume is original, though. It is, well, not original. It's a, a reconstruction of the, the uh, costume as worn at Covent Garden. Yeah, I think that's a, you know, it's an interesting question, and it brings up the, one of the problems of kind of translating an exhibition from one space to another, um, and also brings up, you know, some of the, within every institution, you know, every collaboration, there's also people with different ideas about, you know, what, what we want to show and how we want to evoke dance. Um, I had actually wanted to just show a performance of the Firebird, um, that you know, like because as as Jane pointed out in our installation, um, frequently we have the film as an integral part because one of the goals um, of of the installation here was to try to recreate some sense of the ballet. So we tried to unite as much as possible the costumes, the designs. You know, when we had all three, and then the music and the dance. And I do think that the Firebird is very jarring because it's a very different kind of experience. Um, it's not doing the same thing. Um, I'll just leave it at that. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, also <clears throat> more generally, I mean, it does bring up kind of this question of, you know, how many different Diaghilev exhibitions or ballet Russe exhibitions you could have. And, you know, just sort of in concluding this panel, because unfortunately we have to exit this room by four. Um, this morning, I think I was starting to hear, you know, maybe the seeds of, I'm not sure if I want to call it revisionist histories of the ballet Russe, but um, certainly, you know, with, a, with Sheng's talks and Anna's talk this morning, we saw two different perspectives on Diaghilev that, you know, haven't really been brought out in a strong way. I mean, sort of Diaghilev's kind of nascent or nationalism rooted in this 18th century, you know, very kind of pan-European tradition and how that is part of the ballet russe and many of the ballets. And it gets played down, particularly in this exhibition, because we're telling a different sort of chronological narrative of development. Um, but I think it's an important one. And of course, you know, a lot of this material about the process of putting together and running a company and, you know, Diaghilev's temperament, but also kind of the, the difficulties of running an enterprise like this, and particularly overseas. Um, I just sort of, as an as- side note, um, the uh, amount of logistical um, planning it took for us to bring the two curtains in and hang them was incredible. We had to do, they came in, um, you know, 50-foot shipping containers, and we had to do a dress rehearsal in a way of bringing the containers in, cutting a hole through a wall, you know, got these special um, kind of sailing lifts um, from Britain, actually, and they'll make them here, I don't know why not. And, you know, there's a sort of careful choreography to raise the curtains. And, of course, we have many, many resources and talented people, registrars and art handlers and engineers and designers here to help us do it. But this was like months of planning for these two curtains, and it made me think about the fact that this company in, you know, 1911 and 12, you know, in the middle of the war, was doing this on a nightly basis. Um, That's my aside, but anyway, so that's kind of also... 
you know, no computer. So, you know, but also just that, that kind of that daily aspect of, of um, you know, what it was like to run a company like this or to be in a company like this. And then I think this afternoon, too, we heard um, some, you know, some other, you know, fascinating points about kind of we don't really know, even in this country and in art history in general, you know, Boxed and Benoit often enter the picture only at the moment that they are part of the Ballet Russe, but there is this important history, and again, this complicated question of nationalism, the, you know, the classical heritage, and how that plays into a notion of Russian art that then gets translated into a, you know, the Ballet Russe context. And then, um, of course, you know, also, for me, what was so great is that there's still all these discoveries to be made. And so, you know, that Poulenc's uh, thievery of other thieves and that this has really gone undetected. So I think it shows me that there's kind of continual wellspring of um, information here and in, in new directions. So I don't know who's going to do the next exhibition, but I think it'll be a very different one. So. Can I add just one footnote there? I mean, firstly, you know, we are delighted at the V&A that material can come to America and we're really delighted that those cloths can come uh, but I don't want you to go away thinking that Diaghilev handled the cloths like that, uh, that it was a great effort to get them into the theatre. In those days you just folded them up and bunged them in skips and took them along and bunged them up uh, on, on the rails. It wasn't the big uh, effort it is now. That's a transformation of an artefact into a work of art. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.